As we begin this morning, um, I would encourage you just to uh, turn to Job chapter 4 and kind of keep your finger there. We're going to be going through a couple of chapters this morning. We have uh, quite a bit of territory to cover, but um, we're going to work at it. But I wanted to just give us a bit of review. Last week, actually two weeks ago, <laughs> we introduced Job's friends. Our best understanding is that their friendship grew out of business. They weren't that far from each other, but far enough. And regionally, they probably knew each other because of their business interests. Uh, they were similar in age and social standing. Um, with Job, the scriptures tell us, being the greatest. He was the greatest and the richest one. Their level of friendship is proven by their actions, by the things that they did and, and determined to do. And we saw that back in Job chapter 2, where it says here in, in verse 11, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place. I won't read all those places, but you have Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, for they had made an appointment together. They determined, right, to come and mourn with him, and to comfort him. And what we mentioned before is that there was that emotional connection with mourning with him, but then there was doing something about it. They, they really determined in their hearts to comfort this poor man and all the things that took place. Uh, now, as I mentioned, we've got some things to cover today, so we can't have this really long review, but basically Job lost everything, his children, everything. And so, except for his wife, who really struggled with what was going on and, and kind of separated herself from him. And so, really, he had no one. And we, and we, we um, see some other evidence of that uh, going through the book of Job. So, that will kind of come up again. So, his friends showed up. They came. They were a part of things. It says, And when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize Job, they lifted their voices and wept. Can you imagine three grown men seeing their friend in such bad shape that, that they just started bawling? That's really what took place here. And each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. These were all signs of mourning so that they sat down with Job on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw his grief was very great. Now, one of the things that we talked about, just as far as logistics are concerned, Eliphaz was probably the one who heard of what happened to Job. He speaks first. There's other indications that they probably had maybe a little bit closer relationship, but they were also closer together geographically. And so he probably then sent messengers to tell the other guys, hey, our friend is in trouble. That would have taken a lot of time. We weren't picking up cell phones back then. We weren't jumping into our cars. There wasn't even a telegraph. Okay, I mean, we're talking camel graph. Right? That's, that's, that's where we were. So, yeah. Anyway, so all of this to say, this took time. And so for two months, this man is sitting on a heap of ashes, scraping his sores. Then when they get there, because his grief is so great, they sit with him for seven days, not saying a word. Wow. Does that not punctuate where he is, Right? And in chapter 3, we saw that he just simply does not want to live anymore. He's, he's done. He wants to check out. 
This week, we will hear Eliphaz respond to Job pouring out his grief. And as we begin, I want to remind us that Job is a work of poetry. There's plenty of symbolism and picture language, and our determination has been we, we can't try to cover all of that if we're going to uh, look through uh, these conversations, which we think are important because God put them there. And again, just as a reminder, they happen to be 80% of the book. They tend to be skipped sometimes. We're choosing not to do that, but we can't cover everything. We're looking at the flavor of the text, okay? So as we move forward here, uh, just, just a reminder of how Job's friends showed up. His friends invested their time. They responded deliberately and urgently as much as they could. They had compassion on Job. We talked about that. And they put their compassion into, into action. They wanted to do something for him. That was why they were going. Job's friends stayed by his side and they listened to him. All right. So, so far, things are pretty good. Um, if you know the book of Job, if you know these conversations, you know that it's going to kind of fall apart here. But there's still some good that we're going to be looking at, all right? So we, as we begin today in chapter 4, we see that as Eliphaz responds to Job and responds to just this, this expression of grief that he has in his life, it begins very graciously. I read these, these passages for you. Um, already, and so we're just going to kind of go down through this this um, chapter and and work through some of the things that took place here. In verse two, Eliphaz speaks very kindly to Job. He asks if Job will be able to bear with talking with him. Um, I, I think that's a that's interesting. You know, you're in such a, a sorry state here. Can you, can you take some conversation? I mean that that required some sensitivity, right? But then Eliphaz admits that he feels compelled to speak. He's heard what Job says, and there's just something inside him that says, I I've got some things I need to share with you. Now, let's remind ourselves, you've heard me say it a couple of times, but I'm going to say it again. Purposefully, Job's friends had compassion for him. They came with the purpose of comforting him. So he brings up Job's ministry to others in verses 3 and 4. And you can kind of glance down through there again as we, as we uh, go through. He praises him for helping others when they face difficult times. The terms here, weak hands and feeble knees, give us the picture of people who are troubled, distressed, discouraged, or fearful. Weak hands indicate that, that they either are not knowing what to do or not able to do something. That's, that's kind of the symbolism there. Like I say, we're talking about picture language. Weak knees means that they lack the strength to stand or endure whatever challenges they have faced. In other words, they, they just kind of collapse. Eliphaz reminds Job that many times he effectively helped others who experienced difficult times through his wise counsel. And there maybe he may even have been other ways that he physically helped provide for them as well. We don't know that. We don't have that kind of detail. But the point is, he came to their aid, and he was a comfort to them, uh, meaning that he put his compassion into action in their lives. If you think about it, it's very possible that Eliphaz himself 
benefited from Job's words. Maybe more than one time. He had firsthand knowledge of how Job Job helped other people. And then verse 5 reveals that Eliphaz is using these compliments, unfortunately, as a trap for Job. Eliphaz says to Job, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, you can help others, but you're unable to help yourself when you face similar situations. He's referring back to Job's long and intense lament, like we talked about. Eliphaz is saying that Job is frustrated because he is being inconsistent. He isn't listening to his own advice that he has given other people. To his credit, Eliphaz does briefly return to the position, uh, to the positive, sorry, by telling Job that his integrity gives him a reason for hope. And that really is a beautiful thing that he, that he said. Verse 6, Is not your reverence, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Right? So, so he does land back on the positive, even though he kind of dings him and says, you know, you wouldn't be in such bad shape if you just listened to your own advice. So now we uh, get into what I have labeled here a flawed premise. Uh, Eliphaz is going to counsel Job, but he's going to start with a wrong perspective on things. Um, Have you ever had somebody give you advice when they're not beginning from the right angle on things? Right? It's not helpful, is it? Well, it's kind of where we we find our, our, our friend here, or at least Job's friend, right? And really, this is the central theme of, of the advice of all of Job's friends. This is something that we're going to see over and over again as we examine this. Job 4, 7 through 9 says this, Remember now, who ever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright ever cut off? Even as I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his anger they are consumed. So what was the philosophy in Job's day? Because, again, uh, well, we'll see this a little bit later. I'll, I'll, I'll save that. Uh, good things happen to good people. Does that sound familiar to you? Right? And, and hang on, because this is deep. Bad things happen to bad people. But here's the thing. If you look at the language, that's it. There are no exceptions. That's what Eliphaz is saying. He's saying, look, bring these things up to mind. Do we ever see anything different happen than good things happening to good people and bad things happening to bad people? And what's the undercurrent there? You've had bad things happen to you. We're going to develop this philosophy along the way here, but the basic idea is that the good will always receive blessing and the bad will receive judgment. He then begins to 
make his argument with Job, and he, and he backs it up with what I basically called here a mystical message. And that begins in verse 12. Seemingly out of nowhere, Eliphaz suddenly describes this vision he had about a spirit that brought him a supernatural message. We read, read in Job 4 earlier, but follow along as we begin in verse 12. He first described the message he received as a secret whisper. Now, folks, come on. That's got to intrigue someone, right? I, I had this experience where suddenly something was being whispered in my ear. Oh. Go on, please. Right? That's where we're at. He described a dream that scared him to the point where he was troubled in his spirit and shaking from fright. We saw that. Then this shadowy figure appears that gives him goosebumps. And again, I don't think that this is uh, exaggeration. I think he's describing this dream that he had and, and what took place. We could even call it a nightmare, right? This sounds like a story just in time for Halloween. <laughs> and I didn't plan it that way. In his dream, a spirit that passed in, the spirit passed in front of him and he said he couldn't make out exactly what the spirit looked like. Then the spirit that Eliphaz dreamed up spoke to him. The spirit gave two rhetorical questions asking if a man can be more righteous than God. And of course, the answer there is no. He also compared the angels to humans and said that since God charges all the angels to sin, that God cannot come out, count mere mortals who are what? As his description goes, fragile, broken, and finite. He can't count them as righteous. If we're talking about these spirit beings, these angels, and they're not righteous, certainly man is not. Eliphaz's story is very experiential and extremely vague. Both the deliverer, that spirit being, and the message really has some vagueness to them. In every account in Scripture, when God either spoke directly or through a messenger or a prophet, it was clear that the message came from the Lord. There, there wasn't any, who's talking here? What are you saying? It never happened. And the message itself was specific and understandable. So we've already got some issues here. We need to point out that if anyone gives you their opinion, advice, or theology, starting with, God told me, I encourage you to buckle up because it's going to be a bumpy ride. There are many ways of saying this, though. The Lord spoke to my heart. God revealed something to me. I had a vision or God gave me a sign. An angel spoke to me or some even are bold enough to say that Jesus appeared to them and told them something. By the way, there's a popular book out there where a woman says that she just sits and dictates all the things that Jesus tells her directly. But they all communicate that the person believes God gave them a special message. 
There is nothing, not even a bizarre experience like Eliphaz is talking about that rises above the revealed word of God. Nothing. Eliphaz told his spooky story as a lead-in for the Spirit's important revelation. But here's the thing. The message is kind of a flop. It's what we might have called in time past a nothing burger. Let's examine it. First, well, let me back up. He, he does, I believe, say things correctly about God himself in the first part, right? We can't be holier than God. But that's still kind of obvious. But first, the vision contains error. Angels who do not rebel with, did not rebel with Satan are holy and without sin. There isn't any indication that God is surrounded by sinful creatures. So I don't know where he got that. But secondly, the message given by the mysterious spirit is that people are sinners and that they die. Um, that's not earth-shattering news. He might compare them to angels and kind of, you know, make things a little more dramatic. But that's really what he's saying. People sin and they die. I don't think that's going to surprise anybody in this room. So that's what we're dealing with right now. And then we move into chapter 5. And what I've basically called this is a heartless ending. What do we start with? A gracious beginning. Job, I'm hoping you can bear with this. Are you okay? Because I've got some things I, I just really need to share with you. Some important things to talk with you about. And now we see in chapter 5 that <laughs> it's not so good. Uh, we're going to go through this section by section, and, and, I'll, and I'll read some different passages for you. But obviously we're going to begin in verses 1 through 5, where Eliphaz continues describing his beliefs. After this dream and after this spirit says what it says, it says, Call out now, is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? This goes back, direct reference to the angels. Right? The angels that this spirit had just talked about. For wrath kills a foolish man, and envy slays a simple one. And I have seen the foolish taking root, but suddenly I cursed his habitation. His sons are far from safety, they are crushed in the gate, and there is no deliverer. Because the hungry eat up his harvest, taking it even from the thorns, and a snare snatches this, their substance. By affliction does not come from the dust. Uh, sorry, sorry, for affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble spring from the ground. Yet man is born to trouble, and the sparks fly up. Now there's obviously a little bit here. But he first asked Job two more questions that have obvious answers. He says, Job, is there anyone out there that you can go to for help? Can you turn to an angel and receive help? Now, now these are rhetorical questions. The answer is no. Right? But here's interesting. Uh, he contradicts himself by calling the angels holy ones. <laughs> so that was kind of interesting. He's like, it, we already got a little bit of a mixed message here, all right? But what he's saying is this. You don't have anyone that you can go to because of the state that you're in. You can't be helped because you're obviously not doing right. 
That's a little bit on the veiled side, but then he gets very direct saying that the foolish get what is coming to them. They get caught up in anger or envy and they come to ruin. In other words, there's no one to help you, Job, because you're a fool. Eliphaz then targets Job with a terribly insensitive comment. And it's, it's not something that just jumps right out. But he says that the actions of the wicked affect their children. That they are being broken to pieces by the sins of their parents. When it says in verse 4 that they are crushed in the gate, the gate was the community place of judgment. So Eliphaz is telling Job in a veiled way that he is the judgment uh, for his sin that caused the death of his children. You think about that for a minute. And, and, and if you notice, he talks about the loss of other things. He knows Job's condition. He knows Job's state. And now what he's saying is, because of your sinful actions, you've lost everything. You killed your family. Now, I want us to just very briefly go back to a statement that we've already looked at in Job chapter 4. Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright ever cut off? Even as I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his anger they are consumed. Where is the comfort in Eliphaz's words? Where's the comfort? Let's move on to the next section of chapter 5. <clears throat> Sorry, let me make a quick comparison here. We're going to talk for a minute about God's deliverance. Okay, this is, this is what um, uh, Eliphaz says. From famine, from enemies, from losing crops. Actually, I, I think I'm ahead of myself. Excuse me, sorry about that. I have, I have, anyway, I messed up. Job 5, verses 6 and 7. I'll get back to that. For affliction does not come from dust, nor does trouble spring from the ground. Yet man is born in trouble and as sparks fly up. Eliphaz tells Job that hardships simply pop, don't simply pop up out of the ground. You can't blame creation for what you have done, right? You can't blame somebody else. You can't blame something else. What we might say is troubles simply don't appear out of thin air. Troubles come from ourselves. Also, Eliphaz then gives Job some advice. He says, if, if I were you, if it were me, then we would, might say, if I were you, right? In verses 8 and 9. But as for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. As we continue in verses 10 through 16, it says, He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn he lifts to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that they, their hands cannot carry out their plans. He catches the wise in their own craftiness and the counsel of the cunning comes quickly upon them. 
They meet with the darkness and the daytime and grope at noontime as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword and from the mouth of the mighty and from their hand. So the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth. According to Eliphaz, God gives general blessings by sending rain to the crops. We see that. But then he goes on and says, He raises up the lowly and rescues those who are hurting. Eliphaz gives his description of how God deals with the wicked. He frustrates the plans of the wicked. God catches or traps them in their schemes. That's in verse 13. Verse uh, 13, he also says, God then punishes them. Verse 14, darkness is often related to judgment. This too is a subtle dig at Job and his circumstances. But then we see the, the benefits of God's correction. Job 5, 17 through 27. It's a little bit of a lengthy part of this, but I just want you to follow along as I read these 10 verses. It says, Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore do not despise the chastening of the Almighty, for he bruises, but he binds up. He wounds, but, he hands, but his hands make whole. He shall deliver you in six troubles. Yes, in seven, no evil shall touch you. And again, that number seven there is like the number of completion. In other words, God's always going to do this. He shall deliver you in, sorry, verse 20. In famine, he shall redeem you from death and in war from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the scourge of the tongue and you shall not be afraid of destruction when it comes. You shall laugh at destruction and famine. And you shall not be afraid of the beasts of the earth. For you shall have a covenant with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. Uh, the idea of stones of the field there, just, just to be clear, again, we're talking picture language. This has the idea that, that your crops are going to grow right. You're not going to have all this rocky garbage in your fields, and beasts of the field will be at peace with you. Your, your, your livestock, we're not talking about lions and tigers and bears, oh my, we're talking about livestock. It's going to, they're going to grow for you. You're going to be prosperous. And he goes on. You shall know that your tent is in peace, and you shall visit your habitation and find nothing amiss. You shall also know that your descendants shall be many, and your offspring like the grass of the earth. You shall come to the grave at a full age. As a sheaf of grain ripens to its season, behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear it and know for yourself. As we consider uh, what we have here, um, there's a comparison that is made. God's deliverance. What does Eliphaz say is related to God's deliverance? You'll be delivered from famine. You're going to have plenty. You're not going to be worried about your enemies. You're delivered from losing your crops. You're going to enjoy peace. You're not going to have material loss. You're going to have many and prosperous descendants. And you're going to live long and prosper. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? I think they stole that from here. <laughs> but now let's consider Job's state. Where, where's Job at at this point? Oops, sorry. His enemy stole his livestock. His crops cannot be grown. All of his work animals have been stolen. 
His sheep were all destroyed. His servants were killed. All of his children are dead. He's diseased and near death himself. Total physical, emotional, and spiritual devastation. Do you see what Eliphaz is doing here? He's making this comparison. He's saying, Job, you're in big trouble. You need God to do something. But even in the correction, what, what hope does Job have? It's already all happened to him. It's kind of like this. If you get things right, if you say you're sorry and you take your lumps, God's just going to do these wonderful things for you. It brings no comfort. So as we come to our conclusion, <clears throat> I want us to, to consider some things here. I want us to look at Eliphaz and Job. What, what, did, what did Eliphaz get right about Job? Because he does get some things right. He was gentle and patient at first. He treated Job with gentleness and patience. He was encouraging. He encouraged Job by reminding him that his own ministry of encouragement and his integrity. He gave Job reasons to hope, right? Now, let me ask you a question. And one other thing. He reminded Job of God's character. So let me ask you a question. Would any of us fault this approach? I mean, look at it in a face value. We approach someone with patience and gentleness. We're encouraging. We give them hope that even if they're in a really bad state, that it can and should get better. And we back that up by the character of God. That's good counsel. So in one sense, what Eliphaz said was a gracious thing. But what about what he got wrong? Sorry, it gets a little icky. Even though he started off patiently, he had no consideration for Job's state. He had no consideration for his emotional, his emotions or his state of mind. Job was a wreck, and he just laid into him. He charged Job with being inconsistent. You remember that? He said, you dole out the advice, and it's good, but you're a wreck because you're not even listening to what you tell other people. Now, by the way, I mean, just, just so we understand, was that true? No, no. He was being tested by God. To, to the point that, that no one else besides Christ has ever been tested. He relied on mysticism. I, I don't know why. We, we, we can't read too much into the text, but it might be that he's like, you know what? This is a really important message, and I have to have an ace in the hole here, right? I've got I've to come out blast, and I've got, I got to give him something that's going to get his attention. I, I don't know. Maybe he really had this dream, but either way, it wasn't good. And he uses vision as validation of his message. Job, you are living in sin. You're wrong. You're suffering your consequences. Let's get things right here, buddy. 
he became harsh. Did you see how that flipped? It was a little subtle at first, but then, man, it was in his face. And he misapplied his advice, meaning he was giving advice about the wrong thing to the wrong person because he made assumptions. One of the things that I learned, uh, I might have learned, but I still have to work to practice, is that you ask questions. You ask questions. He asked questions, but they were rhetorical questions. They were questions to set Job up. Not questions to figure out, where are you at? What's going on? Now, he already had that all figured out. Why? Because he believed in what we might call the system of the day. Good things happen to good people, and bad things happen to bad people. That's what was guiding him. Now, Eliphaz also got some things right about God. We're not going to talk about what he got wrong. We're going to kind of talk about that in a little bit different way. But God is a wonderful provider. Would, would, would we disagree with that? No, of course not. And God's correction is right and beneficial. Folks, we're, we're going through a lot today, and so I just want you to understand there might have been some cross-referencing I could have done, but we just have a lot right here in the text. So, so you know, we might look at that in the future, but we know that if we look at other parts in Scripture where correction is talked about, it is for our benefit. It's not for our destruction. And so, again, Eliphaz has it right there. But how does Eliphaz see life with God? I got some things I want us to consider here. Uh, obviously, we talked about this already. This is a bit of review. But again, it's a purposeful reminder. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. There are no exceptions. Right? That's what he said. Remember now. And you say, you've showed this to us a couple times. Yes, I know. <laughs> remember now. Remember now. He's telling Job, we need to remember now what he's saying. Whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright ever cut off? Those are strong words. Even as I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his anger they are consumed. Eliphaz reinforces these ideas in chapter 5. We just looked at that. Everything was the basis of good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And this is how his three friends see life. We see this. It was a little subtle. But look at what 527 says. The end. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear it and know for yourself. We have the answers, Job. 
We, collectively, all three friends, we believe the same thing. And we're telling you, you need to understand this. This is the key to your problems. So this is how the three friends see life. If we are good, God will be good to us. Now, folks, again, if you haven't been here, I can't review all of this. But as Satan came before God and God said, have you considered my servant Job? Check this out. This is exactly how Satan accused both God and Job of operating. He loves you because you protect him. Wow. Job's only in it for what he can get out of it. I'm good before God, and God is good to me. Wonderful. Do you get it? Apparently, Satan knew what people pretty much believed. And he believed the same thing. Maybe there's a connection. <laughs> I don't know. Job 4, 7 through 9 says this. Remember now, whoever perished by being innocent. We read that. But listen to this. I'm going to leave that up there. Yet, here's Job. Sitting in his ashes. Everything gone. Physically suffering and crushed in his spirit. He, he is a man with, from what he sees, humanly speaking, no hope. A righteous man affirmed by God, by the way, twice, twice, God says, Job is a righteous man who is experiencing extreme testing through terrible loss and great suffering. I'll never forget, this is just a line in a movie that just hit me really hard. If you remember, Bilbo Baggins said to Gandalf, I feel thin, sort of stretched like butter scraped over too much bread. Well, let me have you try one on. I imagine Job saying this, I feel withered and crushed, like a fallen leaf someone stepped on and the wind carries it away. I, I'm down. I'm out. I'm suffering. I'm hurting. And I have no one. You see, Eliphaz and his friends have no category in their belief system for what Job is going through. It doesn't compute. They're listening, they're observing, and they're like, buddy, just give it up. Right? You're sinning. We know it. Instead, Eliphaz falls back on what he is convinced is true, confirmed by his experience and his observations. Isn't that what he says? This is what I've seen. Now, we're not going to debate whether or not that's true, but that's what he says. The result is that even though he was right about some things, most of his words and advice were irrelevant, misplaced, and hurtful. Folks, I don't think that's how we want to minister to people, right? 
Now, I want to be careful how I say this. Very careful how I say this. Please be careful how you hear this. If you happen to be a friend to someone and you're counseling them and they're going through a difficult time, I do think that it might be appropriate at times to pause and ask them, hey, look, are you doing okay spiritually? Like, is this a result of some consequences? That's different than saying good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Let's figure out how you can get things right. But given the circumstances, given your judgment, given your love for that person and doing it out of the right heart attitude, it might not necessarily be wrong to ask the question. But ultimately, that's between them and, and, and God, isn't it? I mean, if you have knowledge, that's different. But if you don't know, okay, let's eliminate that. Let's, let's get that off the table. Now let's deal with what you're going through, right? That's okay, but not how um, Eliphaz pursued it. So the result is that Job is far from comforted. Instead, we will read later on that it's just stuff being heaped on to his already suffering heart. You know, I don't know. I, I, I look back at my ministry and I say, did I do something like this ever? Now, don't get me wrong. There's, there's times when we struggle. We, we, we don't know what to say. You know what I mean? And maybe those are times we need to be careful just to not say anything. But I think that part of what we need to understand is what we say comes from our hearts if our hearts are judgmental, if our hearts are purely looking at the outside experiences of the person and saying, mm, maybe there's something off there, then what's going to come out of our heart is not going to be helpful. Do we have a belief system, and maybe this is where Job's com Job comes in, where we acknowledge that someone can suffer and suffer greatly simply because God is doing something in their life and potentially doing something in the lives of a lot of other people around them for his glory. And not because they've offended him. You see, in this case, Eliphaz cannot be any further from the truth because the truth of Job's suffering is so far and extreme from normal. <laughs> so for him to take what he considers to be the norm, which he's off on anyway, and then try to apply that to an extreme case is just putting gasoline on Job's fire. So one of our morning takeaways today is to be warned and informed of how to help those who are going through testing and how not to help them. <laughs> now, I understand. I understand that. I'm sorry, let me put it this way. I assume that no one in here is going to walk into someone's life and be as brash and as bold and as cold as Eliphaz. But there are things that we can say 
that can be several degrees away from that and still be hurtful and unprofitable, right? But let's think back about what he did say was right. We can encourage those people. We can remind them of how they are uh, useful to God and serving God in a meaningful way. And we can remind them of who God is. And just to say one more thing that we have mentioned earlier in our studies is that all of us are going to go through testing if we are a child of God. Some of that testing, no, all of that testing is going to be different for each person. And it is possible that God can take a person through some very deep and long and difficult times. It is not for us to sit back and say, okay, you know, time's up. Snap out of it. It's over now, right? Let's, let's get back to where you're supposed to be. No, we don't have the right to do that. That's God's timing. Now, again, I tried to balance that with we've got to be careful to not do the wallowing stuff, right? That's, that's ugly. And I'm, and I'm trying to be sensitive here. But at the same time, we don't know what God's timing is. We can't make it our timing. You know, that, that's enough now. Get over it. We're not talking about children skinning their knees or losing a toy, right? We're talking about God's process of refining someone. God's process of affirming their faith in him in their lives. Another thing we can glean from Eliphaz's words is that there must be something more than simply trying to please God with what we do. In other words, there's something more than just working to be affirmed by God. We know that to be the good news of Christ paying for our sins. And we're going to see some of that in the book of Job. But prior to looking at those things, I just want to say, if we're relying on a world system that says, you just got to be good enough and God's going to love you, it's not just that you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be lost in hell forever. Remember, Satan was the one who began in this book saying, eh, He's just good to gain favor with you. And you're just protecting him so you can receive his worship. Let me tell you something. That's not how God operates. And the cross is how we fully understand that. Because a God who's in it all for himself would have never done anything for us. But a God who understands that we are weak that we are needy, that we cannot help ourselves, sent himself, God the Son, to die a horrific death in our place to take our punishment upon him.
So good things happen to good people and bad things happen to good people through Christ turns into this. Bad people turn into good people because the perfect one took all the bad away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have to acknowledge that there is a world out there with, without any exaggeration that has the same philosophy that Olive has and his friends had. I just need to be good, and then I'm good. And yet your word clearly tells us that there is none righteous, no, not one. That every one of us are literally hell-bent on doing what we want to do far from you until you intervene. We thank you for your graciousness. We thank you for your love. And we thank you that there is someone we can hope in that is beyond us. I, I think of Eliphaz questions. Who, who are you going to call? Who, who, who are you going to rely upon? Lord, we thank you that you've given us that answer. I pray that there's someone who does not know you as Savior today, regardless of age, if they understand, Lord, that they have offended you and that their goodness is not enough. I pray, Father, that you'll Call them into your family even today. I pray they'll talk with one of us. Father, if we are hurting in our lives for the wrong reasons, I, I do pray that we will take Eliphaz's advice and call upon you and respond to you in that daily faith and say, I, I'm going to turn from my sin and I'm going to believe and I'm going to, I'm going to, I want deliverance, not necessarily from all the consequences, but from the, the guilt that I'm experiencing right now from, from my lack of relationship with you. And Lord, if there's someone here who is hurting to the point where they're confused, where they don't know which way is up, where there's, there's just some genuine despair, Father, I pray that they will, again, take Eliphaz's advice and remember who you are. Remember of your deep abiding love for them and trust your process, your way of doing things to refine us and to glorify you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.